Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome today, everybody. This is uh, Sean Fox coming to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, Carolina's Emergency Medicine Department. And I am thrilled to have uh, with me two innovative and thought leaders in the realm of a very important topic, pain management in the emergency department. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you. I'm Christopher Griggs, uh, Assistant Professor in Emergency Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. I've been researching the pain management in the emergency department and the opioid epidemic uh, for the past uh, six to seven years, and really excited to talk to you all today with uh, Sergey and Sean. Which leads us to say, Sergey, who are you? Hi, my name is Sergey Motta. First of all, Sean and Chris, thank you so much for having me. I'm an ED doctor from Brooklyn, my Maimonides Medical Center. Academically, I'm a research director in the Division of the Emergency Department, and as Chris, I've been researching principles of safe effective and efficient analgesia in the ED for the past 10 years. And I'm as excited as all my colleagues today to be here and to talk to you about ED pain management. I think that we can all appreciate that this has become a very hot topic, a very important topic, currently very prevalent in the media, but has obviously for us in the emergency department and the front lines has been a very uh, notable issue for a long time, ever since we started having pain scales essentially as a, a vital sign. I think many of us can appreciate a significant uh, change in our, our management and potentially our behavior, which may have had some ramifications. And now we're having some new uh, trends that we have to become a, uh, aware of. And I think this is a great opportunity for us to maybe make changes for the better. And I'm so glad that you guys are, are experts in this field because all I know is I don't like when people are in pain, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot of magic medicines out there that I can use, but there's a lot of strategies that you guys probably employ that I'm not even familiar with. So I really appreciate your time to sit with me today. So a couple of simple basic questions. So when we're talking about treating pain in the emergency department, what would you say are the biggest successes and the biggest challenges facing emergency medicine providers today? I'll let you start with that, Sergey. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I'm going to start with challenges because this is always the hardest part to describe. And I'm going to just summarize it very, very briefly. The most important thing, in my opinion, is it to a, find a balance when it comes to opioid analgesia between safety and efficacy and harms associated with their use, especially in the light of this opioid epidemic. I'm proposing to keep this pendulum somewhere in the middle. I don't want people to be too liberal, and I don't want people to push for this opioid-free ED. And this is, I believe, one of the biggest challenge, not banning them entirely, but being judicious and being practical and safe. Second of all, I think one of the big, greatest challenges to push for destigmatizing patients with an opioid use disorder, formerly known as an addiction, these are the people suffering from chronic disease. And I think ED across the country have a great and unique opportunity to counsel, refer, and frankly, even initiate treatment for patients suffering from opioid use disorder with, let's say, buprenorphine, for example. And lastly, approach to overall to pain should be changed with respect to engaging patients in shared decision-making. Tell them what you're doing. Have patients make a 
solid and concise decision with respect to what analgesic they want, what route would they prefer, and explain to them Briskin's benefits for their short-term and long-term use. Grace? I think that's really great. Um, and you, you hit some really important parts there, Sergey. I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think probably over the past 10 to 15 years, we've really become aware and started measuring pain in a much better way than probably we did maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And we, there's a lot of controversy around the pain scale and that, you know, hey, patient tells me they have a pain score of eight, um, but they don't look like they're in, you know, eight out of 10 pain. But at least we're measuring something and we're really trying to nail down, hey, my patient can communicate to me in a way that tells me they're in pain. And we're, we're able to manage the pain because we're actually doing research around, hey, what are we measuring as their pain score and, and how are we um, addressing those pain scores? But at the same time, you and I know one person's eights, not another person's eights, not the next person's. And so um, the challenge is, is how do we treat and uh, excel at treating all the patients aggressively and managing their pain without going down the road of exposing them to risk, uh, particularly in the opioid epidemic. I mean, we were all, when I trained in medical school, I mean, I saw all my mentors giving out opioids aggressively because we thought there was very little risk if patients were in real pain. At least that's what I was taught. And now we know that the more opioids we pour into our community, the more opioid use disorder we're going to see. And honestly, we're starting to question whether patients who are on long-term opioids are having their pain managed effectively, and maybe we're making their pain worse. So that's, that's the challenges we face now. We sort of ha- have inherited this history that we've done a lot of great work around pain. We're acknowledging that patients are in pain and we need to alleviate it, but maybe our strategy initially of using the strongest pain medicines up front really wasn't setting us up for success in the long run. Um, Sure, we could treat the patient's pain in the next five minutes and they'd feel good, but what were we doing to them in the long run? How were we changing the way their brain is structured? And I hope that we can discuss some of those challenges today and, Sergey, how how you kind of deal with that. Well, I agree with 100%. It's a very, very important point. Once again, it comes to, you know, three things. Education on behalf of providers and, frankly, patients. Uh, Shared decision-making and what you and me have been researching in the past, push for so-called multimodal, but I use this patient-specific pain syndrome-targeted approach. When you're utilizing analgesics available to you from different classes that are acting on different target sites, and you push for this synergy to achieve superior pain relief, and that approach will allow you, frankly, to decrease, reduce, at times even avoid uber-strong analgesics such as opioids. And you can manage patients' pain in a different setting that it was 10 or 15 years ago, as you mentioned, by liberal prescribing of opioids without really thinking of consequences to it. You know, Sergey, I really like what you had said originally, how it would be a really good goal for us to avoid the massive pendulum swing again. As we typically do, I think for a lot of issues, we start on one end of the spectrum and all of a sudden we realize that that's not a great place to be. So we swing way all the way to the extreme other end. And yeah, I I don't think that an opiate-free emergency department is a good goal. At the same time, a opiate... uh, First. (laughs) Opiate first. I like that. uh, A freely flowing opiate (laughs) emergency department also is not a great 
place to be either. And yes, patients come to me because they have pain. And I pride myself in being able to care for my patients in the you know, most excellent way I can do. And if I can take someone's pain away, then I think that that's a good thing. But, you know, you've pointed out there are different issues here. And the patient brings with them their own set of complex issues. One, it's not just, is it dental pain versus a broken bone? Those seem very intuitive to me, like those would maybe be different pains. But they also have their own pain experiences before that get wrapped up into this. And having a shared decision-making and having the ability to include the individual patient is probably going to be, in my mind, a significant strategy to help us tailor things to individuals. Is that, does that sound correct? Am I off base in trying to find a middle ground? No, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Sean. I think we have to get our patients buy-in to whatever strategy we're going to do. Um, I mean, our, our success in managing their pain is them believing in our pain management strategy. I think the big error we made in the past was we ubiquitously gave opioids because we said, hey, this is the strongest pain medication. But we know that opioids aren't necessarily the strongest pain medication for every indication. Combining NSAIDs and acetaminophen sometimes can be stronger for many indications, uh, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But yeah, I think that strategy of how we communicate um, with our patients and get their buy-in is huge in pain management. Oh, I agree with both of you 100%. Just one, if I may, to add to everything was mentioned and uh, put it out for our listeners is to uh, setting up realistic expectations is extremely important. Talk, as Chris mentioned, we've had this conversation in the past, natural trajectory of pain syndrome is extremely important. And we need to be honest with patients in the sense that, listen, we may not be able to take pain entirely away, but this is not the goal. The goal is functional restoration. I just want to get you up so you can go back home, take care of your family, go back to work, brush your hair, brush your teeth, do something. Functional restoration or improvement, this is the goal. If you talk to patient openly and realistically, they'll buy in and they will listen. And so many times we've said, you know what, I want to make this pain go away. It's not the goal. Be realistic, set right expectations so patient knows what to expect. Does their specific type of pain matter? Whether their pain is, again, I mentioned, you know, uh, a fractured bone, whether their pain is an acute issue or whether their pain is something that's been going on chronically, does that play a role? I would imagine it does. I think, I think that's huge in terms of understanding where your patient's pain is coming from and the chronicity of it is very much going to dictate your management of that pain and decision of what modalities you're going to use. We typically call acute pain as a pain that you can identify lesion in the body. There is some sort of inflammation going on in your body that is causing release of inflammatory markers that's stimulating your peripheral nervous system and causing those pain signals to go to your brain. And so in acute pain, that, that lesion, whether it's a broken bone, a cut, a burn, a contusion, we expect that to heal. Most of the time, it's days to weeks. Sometimes it can be months, but rarely is it greater than three months. And after that healing's done, the pain usually goes away. So we're tr what we're trying to do is decrease that inflammation and decrease the intensity of that pain during healing. But once healing's gone on, 
acute pain should no longer exist in the vast majority of the cases. Now, chronic pain is distinct from that, and that's pain that's usually lasting greater than three to six months. And what we now understand about chronic pain is that it usually starts with an acute pain episode of some injury, but then it progresses and your central nervous system reorganizes and the neurochemistry of it changes to where now you experience pain persistently in a specific distribution of your body. But when we look at, you know, functional MRI studies, uh, animal studies, we see that the, the brain is rewiring and the experience of that pain necessarily isn't a lesion in your body anymore, but it's just these hypersensitive circuits in your brain that are constantly experiencing pain. So syndromes like fibromyalgia, sometimes, you know, certain arthritis and complex regional pain syndrome, these are more the common chronic pain, but chronic low back pain is probably the most common type of, of chronic pain that we see. And those two are also distinct from what, what we call chronic malignant pain. And chronic malignant pain is, you know, metastatic cancer. There is constant tissue destruction in your body that unless somehow you're able to cure the cancer, you don't expect that pain to go away and you're just stimulating with inflammation in your body, your peripheral pain fibers, and constantly experiencing pain. And we tend to treat that aggressively with every modality we can because we're palliating the person to some endpoint, whether we're able to cure them or not. Um, we're really trying to create a, a palliative experience for them. Um, and I would even add another category of pain to those three, which is what we classically describe as pain. And the other category I would say um, that we're starting to see in the, the neuroscience and psychiatry literature is emotional pain. And emotional pain kind of can augment any other pain experience. And if you're stressed out, anxious, the same circuits in your brain that motivate you to learn and avoid pain, those same circuits apply to emotional pain. And it's part of the survival mechanisms in our brain. And it's really important for us to avoid emotionally painful experiences because it, it's what helps bond us to our family, our tribe, and our group. And so you'll often see patients who are going through really difficult times in their life, whether, you know, they lost a loved one or they're going through some sort of breakup with a significant person in their life, and they come in experiencing chest pain, abdominal cramping. And that's really emotional pain. And they may just need some counseling and maybe not, you know, oral painkillers to be able to alleviate that pain, but it can manifest as physical symptoms, even though there isn't anything physically going on with them. You know, I would, as, as a pediatrician, I probably have access to a therapy that's aimed essentially at emotional pain, and that's my child life specialist. Absolutely. Right? So I can, I can appreciate that. I, I like that explanation. So essentially, we've got acute pain, we've got some chronic pain. We certainly, unfortunately, have the chronic malignant pain, and then we've got emotional pain, all of which every individual is going to potentially experience somewhat differently. We have to sort all that out. But in the beginning, when I'm evaluating the patient up front in the emergency department, sometimes it's hard to sort some of that out. And, and again, I want to want to make them feel better. Is it Right now I'm feeling the media and what is being out there telling me I should never prescribe opiates and that I'm a, a, a terrible physician if I do so. But I feel, you know, this kid's got a both bone forearm fracture. Probably should do, uh, yeah, I know he's got some emotional pain too because, you know, his brother pushed him down. But I would like to give him some pain medicine. Am I being a, a horrific physician? Am I doing any long-term consequential damage if I give this kid some, you know, morphine or other opiate, or I just reduced his fracture and he's got a cast and now I understand the cast should make him feel better. But what if I give him a couple doses of Lortab to help him sleep at night? Yeah, I think, I think every individual, you have to look at what is the risk for that individual. 
in general, my approach to any pain in the emergency department is, can I adequately manage this pain without using opioids because of the risk of the opioids? Now, every pain medicine you're going to use is going to have some risk factor. You use Tylenol, you have to think about, do they have liver problems? You use NSAIDs, do they have renal problems? Do they have GI distress and at risk for bleeding? So every medicine you use is going to have a side effect profile. But the biggest challenge with opioids is, and this is a mantra that Sergei and I use, is is the opioid-naive brain, is that brain at high risk that when you give them that first opioid that you're going to trigger something in them that's going to snowball to, wow, I felt really good and I want to use these medicines because they make me feel good, or is it just going to be I'm treating the pain? So if you can keep opioid-naive patients opioid-naive, you're extremely reducing the risk. Now, they have a bone fracture. You may be able to treat them with Tylenol, Motrin, ketamine, multiple other modalities and manage their pain, but you may not. And I don't usually wait around a long time to figure out, hey, that their pain isn't managed. I, I am aggressive in severe acute pain to use opioids up front. And I think the risk of using a dose in the emergency department isn't as big as if you're sending them home with several days of an opioid prescription. But the risk is always there. And you have, you have to weigh that every time you think about it. There's a risk to me giving this drug. There's really never, it's always safe. There's always risk. But how much is the risk in that individual? Now, if the individual in front of me has a broken bone and they're a previous IV heroin user, I mean, that's crazy high risk. And I'm going to go a lot farther in that individual to try to use multimodal pain therapy and avoid opioids than the, than the person who otherwise doesn't have risk factors. What do you think, Sergey? Well, I agree with you 100%, Chris. And this is a very, very important point. And I'm very happy that Sean brought it up. That, you know, obviously, we go 10, 20, 30 years ago, not to give an opioid somebody with a broken bone, it's barbaric. We don't use barbarism anymore. But as I said earlier, there is certain entity and certain, certain pain syndromes that opioids are indicated. What I like what Chris said is it becomes more patient-specific and then becomes more therapy-specific. Opioids are different. And when it comes to an opioid, if you prescribe them for the properly selected patients who have less or no potential for misuse, abuse, and diversion, and if you prescribe an opioid with a lesser degree of euphoria, which will lead to a self-administration or buying them on the street or escalating dose and becoming, unfortunately, addicted to this medication because of this euphoric effect, you might be okay. And frankly, one dose of parental opioid in the ED for mortal pain related to perforated viscous, uh, long bone fractures, and send patient home with, a, let's say, two, no more than three days worth of an opioid for the breakthrough pain and specifically explain to the patient, you're going to be using them only when you are about to feel like you can manage pain anymore, in addition to non-opioid analogies that were provided to you. I think this is relatively safe. Yeah, and I, I, Sergey, I really liked your point how we do have a little bit of data. It's not the best data, and you and I have gone back and forth on this about w which opioids have higher risk of abuse and euphoria than other opioids. And, and what do you do in your practice? Felix, in a sense that I believe from opioid perspectives, parenteral morphine and oral morphine, which is morphine sulfate immediate release tablets, provide better balance with respect to analgesic efficacy and safety. You know, morphine is a centuries-old drug with a great efficacy, and frankly predictable side effects, easily mitigatable with respect to, you know, naloxone and, and such and such and such. So my go-one guy is morphine. Should morphine fail, I use fentanyl from parental perspectives. 
And if I need to send patients on a very short course of an opioid, no more than two days, I usually do. It's morphine sulfate, immediate release. And that's the 15 milligram tabs? Yes, for opioid naive, which I only use. Even though I'm trying to keep them naive, it's my favorite slogan. I'm so happy you brought it up. 15 milligram tabs, Q6, at times I maybe go to Q8, no more than two days. In addition to combo NSAIDs, IPAP, topical, with specific emphasis on these are the rescue. These are not a go one or go two guys. These are the rescue medication. That's why you gave me the limited amount of them. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I haven't been as aggressive on, on giving the um, morphine immediate release, but I, I have started incorporating into that in my practice lately. And one of the things that comes up a few times with me is, you know, we're starting to see the prescription monitoring programs and people are me- measuring morphine equivalents. But you give 15 milligrams of morphine immediate release Q6 hours, that's 60 milliequivalents of morphine a day. And if you look at the equal analgesic tables, you know, oh, if you give hydrocodone, you're not giving as much if you give five milligrams a day. But you and I have had conversations that you really challenge that equal analgesic efficacy and the euphoric and abuse potential of 15 milligrams of oral morphine compared to hydrocodone or oxycodone, correct? Yes, you're absolutely correct. I do respect morphine milligram equivalents, and I agree with you. But people just need to understand, regardless morphine milligram equivalents, there's no really safe dose of an opioid. You know, the traditional teaching less than 20 morphine milligram equivalents per 24 hours. Traditionally, say 50, you got about twice as much risk of overdose. And when you get to 100, it's about nine times higher risk of overdose. Yes, there are true numbers, but nobody factors in euphoric and abuse potential, such as liability and abuse likability. Two days for opioid-naive patients, six pills of morphine sulfate immediate release, in theory, should not be putting them on the path of misuse, abuse, diversion, and unfortunate development of an addiction, because they are more dysphoric than not euphoric. You take them all, you'll vomit, you feel sweaty, you feel nauseous, you feel not happy. You take oxycodone, all of them, you feel grandiose, euphoric, tranquil, you want to do more and more. And that's what checks and balances come in. But I have a question to Sean, since he brought up as our amazing pediatrician. Do you use morphine sulfate immediate release in pediatric population? Because codeine is out, we all know this. All right, so we don't really use much of oxys, oxycodone, hydrocodone in pediatric patients. Although if you need to, you probably can do a little bit of lower tab. My question is, in your practice, or have you seen any increased improvement in prescribing of morphine sulfate immediate release for pediatric patients? I would say that only because Chris Griggs is sitting next to me and works with me has that even become something that is introduced into our practice. I would, without hesitation, say, you know, five years ago, a child that had both bone forearm fracture would go home with... Roxaset with Lortab easily. And I like what you said, Sergey, about if I take too much morphine sulfate, I don't feel good. Whereas if I take too much Lortab or Roxaset, I, I might feel pretty good. And that is probably the main difference that needs to be appreciated better. The other thing is you mentioned that this is for breakthrough pain. And that's probably the thing I spend most of my time discussing with families is we've casted your child's arm. The arm, yes, it hurts, but the main thing is the cast is going to make the bone not move around. So your child is going to have mitigated pain response because of that. I suspect tonight we won't feel great, and I suspect maybe sometimes tomorrow we won't. But if we're on round-the-clock Tylenol, round-the-clock ibuprofen, maybe both, we probably can bring that pain down to a dull roar and only need to use the opiate medicine sparingly for breakthrough. 
And the thing I do applaud the media coverage of this is that that story makes that conversation I just had with the family a lot easier. I make it akin to the MRSA conversation, you know, where before MRSA was a big deal in the media, everybody wanted antibiotics, but all of a sudden MRSA became a big deal. And then me telling families that the child with the runny nose and um, some green snot didn't need azithromycin because it might cause MRSA. All of a sudden that became an easier conversation to have. So this is also something that we can use to make that pendulum get back into the middle. Hey, I appreciate your child is not comfortable. Here's how we're going to manage that pain. We're going to give you round-the-clock pain management in this method, and here's something that you can use sparingly. But I do want you to use it sparingly, and I do think that ascertaining what someone's individual potential for abuse is is going to be something that I'm going to try to incorporate more in my own practice because that's, from what I'm hearing from you guys, a very integral part of that conversation. Yeah, I think, Sean, what you're saying, that's my primary approach for an opioid sparing strategy because really the most exposure to opioids that our patients get is the opioids they get sent home with. And also those are the opioids that individuals divert mostly because the vast majority of people who use opioids in the community get it free from a friend or a relative. And so if we if we tell patients, hey, you know, I'm giving you not that many because this is just for breakthrough pain, you really shouldn't need more than six or eight pills because we know that when you combine acetaminophen with NSAIDs, it is a potent and strong pain medication for the vast majority of acute pain syndromes. And when you compare it head-to-head in randomized placebo-controlled trials, acetaminophen with NSAIDs beats out opioids repeatedly in multiple different acute pain syndromes. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with both of you. And I just want to wrap it up this with usually send as I tell to my residents all the time. It takes 30 seconds to write a prescription for Percocet, Vicodin, and such. It takes about 30 minutes to have a conversation with the patient-patient's family, exactly as Yushon brought it up, on risk benefits and a need for sparing use of opioids at discharge and only use them as instructed, as directed, minding that this is not the cure or panacea for everything else. And inappropriate use or any deviation from the doctor's strategy will result in unwanted side effects. And yeah, that conversation might take another, you know, 15, 20 minutes longer than it was for me to write the prescription. However, when that patient comes back having an acute need for Narcan, they're going to stay in my department for multiple hours. So there's always the uh, other side of the coin that I can look at as potentially uh, preventing repeat visit for unwanted side effects. I would argue that talking earlier about that first dose of the opioid you give in the emergency department, something we're working on here is, you know, if you're able to teach your patients that they can manage their pain without opioids in the emergency department, that conversation is 10 times easier. Because if you aggressively manage them up front with opioid sparing modalities, you gave Tylenol with NSAIDs, maybe gave some topicals, and their pain got a lot better, you don't need to have a lengthy conversation about sparing opioids and using it for breakthrough because you really got their pain to be tolerable in the emergency department, which is an argument if we started having triage protocols that really aggressively treated multi modally right up front. By the time the patient got back and saw you, their pain would be treated with something that they believed would work and you could send them home with that same strategy. 
So Chris, what is on your list of those things? What is your multimodal approach to non-opiate therapies? Well, I, one of the easiest things that I think you can start in, in your facilities is, um, for example, we see not a small amount of dental pain. Um, now, this is not every ED is seeing a lot of dental pain, but we, we certainly see plenty. So all my dental pain patients, they get Tylenol with ibuprofen up front. I usually give 650 to 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol, 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, and then I give them 20% topical benzocaine. We have these little lolly cane ointments, and I have them just start applying it to their tooth. And literally 75 to 80% of the time, I come back and their pain is gone. Like, they feel great. And I can send them home with that strategy. The benzocaine, if you're only having it, take it two to three times a day. There's not really risk of toxicity. And if you can get them an expedited dental follow-up, then uh, you can take care of their pain. And that's really great, especially for those patients that are afraid of dental blocks. Dental block would be my next strategy uh, for that individual if they allow me to stick a needle in their mouth. And usually opioids is my, my last step in those individuals. That sounds like a great combination. And I do uniformly the same, except we don't have benzocaine. And we do, I do use IPAP, uh, I'm sorry, acetaminophen, ibuprofen combination and dental block for the patients. And I try to rationalize why is it important by basically saying the pill is going to last about four to six hours. Block is properly executed. It will give about eight to 12 and you'll be able to sleep overnight and then go into the dentist. Sergey, what do you do for back pain? Because that's really a common one we always struggle with. And there's lots of different strategies. What's your favorite approach? So once again, we're focusing on acute pain, correct? Acute back pain. So not a person who's always in back pain. Perfect. Acute back pain. So traditionally, it's probably myofascial or musculoskeletal pain syndrome type of things. So no opioids up front. I'm just saying I'll never give opioids for acute pain. Somebody bend over and lift something heavy and now they're having pain. They come in. It's a combo of acetaminophen, ibuprofen up front. If they cannot take systemic NSAIDs, they do get topical, either lidocaine patch in DD, or they get topical Voltaren gel or Flector patch. Unfortunately, I can do it in the I cannot do it at discharge due to insurance constraint. And recently, I've been staying away from any type of muscle relaxant because studies show that neither metacarbamol, uh, cyclobenzaprine, or orphanadrine are adding anything to so-called muscle relaxation for patients with a pure musculoskeletal pain, sprain, strain, and such. NSAIDs, acetaminophen, systemic or topical, cold in the beginning, 24 hours ice, then heating pad, greater physical exercise, and tell them that it lasts about three to four days, you're going to be in pain, and subsequently you should get better. Yeah, I, lo- I love that strategy. Um, I Like you, I use acetaminophen with NSAIDs as my first go-to, and we'll quickly add uh, lidocaine patches. Uh, do you give, I, I tend to tell my patients to use the 4% because it's pretty equivalent to 5% and you can buy 4% over the counter for pretty cheap um, and 5%, you know, depending on their insurance status can, can cost you money. Yeah, music to my ears. That's what exactly I tell patients in my residence. Don't write prescription for 5% lidocaine. Six patches, $325 and 99% of insurances don't cover. Lidocaine 4% patch, six patches, $10 over the counter. Same analgesic efficacy huge difference. And I'm glad you brought this point up. Sometimes I think we need to factor in the cost of the medication. Absolutely. What do you think about uh, trigger point injections for back pain? I've really been using that a lot more in my practice. Well, I followed your lead uh, on this one. We did some, uh, as I remember, talks together. I love them. I truly, truly respect them for purely identify trigger point in the set of myofascial pain syndrome. Nothing works better. When I do dry needling, you do injection with a local anesthetic or even saline, as long as you can break that spasm and make that muscle less irritable and fluffier, pain goes away without pretty much anything else. 
You can even premedicate the area with the amla and let as far as I've done this in elderly, I mean, on adult patients. So the actual injection would be less painful. Once you break that spasm, they will ready, they're ready to hug you. I think we have to do a lot better job of training um, all the docs throughout medicine, both in primary care and emergency medicine, about, about trigger points, because I think it's been an overlooked area. And since I've incorporated in my practice, I mean, my patients walk out so happy. It has to be a myofascial pain syndrome, so you have to identify a trigger point. And I will literally press all along the trapezius, all along the paraspinal muscles to see, hey, can I really reproduce this pain or reproduce the spasm? And if there's a point that's really tender, I mean, when I go in there and I give them saline or lidocaine injection and I, I move the needle in and out through several planes, I mean, a lot of them within 10, 15 minutes, they say, doc, I feel so much better. And it's really satisfying. It's one of those few things you can do in emergency medicine where you see an instant change in the patient satisfaction. So uh, I really encourage if you haven't incorporated into your practice to start trying to use it, particularly for neck and back pain is where I find the biggest efficacy. I want to thank you for that because I actually came into a shift one day, had an amazing neck spasm. I was just beginning my shift. I wasn't going to be able to go home. And one of our residents that you taught injected my neck and I was able to get through the rest of the shift. I appreciate that. I was able, I I don't know if I should thank you because I still had to work. (laughs) Um, But also to what you said, Sergey, you know, I've had bad back spasms before. Every human who stands upright has had bad spasms before. Muscle relaxers do absolutely nothing. They have never helped me personally, and I've never had a patient that I've prescribed them for who comes back to me and says, that was amazing. If anything, you know, they make you feel a little funny. Yeah, Um, sleepy. uh, I really appreciate those approaches. Now, my residents do like to talk a lot about ketamine, and they know that I love using ketamine because I'm a pediatrician, but more and more they've been saying, hey, you know, this patient has such and such injury, let's give them ketamine. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Sergey, you you are the expert in ketamine. You've published a bit on this, huh? Well, we've done, yes, we've done some some work on it. And look, we have a mutual respect for ketamine based on our prior work together. And as Sean mentioned earlier as well, it's a it's amazing drug. And as long as you know how to use it and you should not be having any problems or reservation when it comes to pretty much everything else. I'm a big proponent of ketamine for pretty much any type of pain, specifically for opioid-tolerant, chronic cancer, non-cancer pain, conditions such as opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And frankly, this is my goal one guy when I really believe patient may not benefit, have contraindication, or will definitely become much sicker when it comes to an opioid therapy. And we all know range 0.1 to 0.3 milligram per kilogram given over 15 minutes will probably do the trick, will get pain up optimal level that the patient will be happy with. And obviously, once again, in addition to something else. Chris? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, th- I think where ketamine is my favorite is particularly in those patients that, you know, are high risk for opioids, but you know they're going to need something more than acetaminophen and NSAIDs because they have that long bone fracture or they have some severe tra- traumatic injury going on. And if they have a history of opioid dependence or IV drug abuse, it's really hard to treat their pain with opioids because their tolerance is just through the roof. And so you can just dump 200, 300 micrograms of fentanyl into them, and you can go from no pain relief to apnea real quick, and it's just super hard to titrate. But with ketamine, you know, it's because you're acting on an MDA receptors, you're going through a completely different mechanism that their opioid tolerance you can bypass, and you're effectively giving them some great pain management. So I love it, particularly in that case. 
But I think, you know, we can use it in multiple other uh, scenarios in the emergency department for that severe pain, uh, which I employ as well. Uh, it's not going to be as convenient as opioids because nurses' apprehensiveness around it, and you have to do a lot of education in your departments. But our department's gotten really comfortable with it now, and uh, I can use it, pain dose ketamine, quite frequently in multiple different patients, both pe- pediatrics and adults. This is great. This is really great. <clears throat> Sean, do you find... Uh, any difficulties of giving ketamine in so-called sub-dissociative dosing intranasally for pediatric patients with respect to tolerance? We actually had a study here that utilized intranasal ketamine in our pediatric patients and found it to be not only easy to use but efficacious. So as Chris mentioned, we fortunately have a good history with our use of ketamine and our nursing staff and all of our faculty are quite comfortable with it. I think as with everything, you need to assess your patient first. So with pediatrics, I'm a, I'm a proponent of if I can give you intranasal medicine right when you come in the door with your obvious you know, forearm deformity, I can do that faster than I can put an IV in. I know actually intranasal fentanyl is equally efficacious and has the same onset of efficacy as intravenous morphine. So I can get someone pain managed relatively rapidly with intranasal medicine, but not every kid, not every person likes medicine being squirted up their nose. So as you mentioned before, there's other things that need to be weighed in. You need to assess your patient. You need to kind of weigh in what other um, potentially mitigating circumstances there are. If uh, if you think it's a, a potential feasible method, then I have absolutely no qualms of giving intranasal ketamine and find it to be quite useful. Beautiful. Now, Sergey, I've had some patients where we're giving sub-dissociative dosing, usually in our shop we do 0.2 to 0.3 mg per kg up to a max of 35 milligrams of ketamine. And they do have some, you know, out-of-body feelings, they feel real nervous, um, and then they don't want any dosing in the future. And I even had an anesthesiologist come up to me the other day who works with trauma patients saying like, yeah, you guys are giving those doses uh, downstairs, and then they don't want it upstairs because they didn't like how they felt. Is there a way we can give the medicine that it doesn't cause that sort of... Uh, uh, side effect for the patients? Yes. So the way I, I see it, I'm almost from believer, no matter what strategy you use, and frankly, no matter what dose you use, because of the unique psychoperceptual side effect of ketamine and ability to hit your brain instantaneously, I think some degree of this out-of-body experience patients going to be experienced no matter what you do. However, pre-medication or shown with proper support on this one, pre-procedural coaching. When you explain to the patient that once you get this medication, you are going to feel this way. Sometimes upset, unpleasant sensory experiences because you were warned and you're kind of ready. And second, you can obviously use a lower dose and you can extend the duration of infusion. I never push ketamine. I don't ever give it over two to five minutes. My shortest infusion is 15 minutes and subsequent we've been using continuous infusion in the ED, which I was going to talk to you about if you guys use the same strategy. Point being, never push it, pre-procedural, pre-medication administration coaching, and extend the duration from 15 to 20, from 20 to 30. It will work. Analgesic efficacy will be the same, but the rate of side effects will be decreasing. We did a study in my shop when we compare IV push to short infusion. We were able to show that there was 46% decrease in rate of feeling unreality. That's the out-of-body experience, or in a jargon, it's called tripping. So it works. 
That's great. I, we haven't started doing the continuous infusions, but it's some, it's a goal of mine to get that on board here because uh, what I find is patients will come back, oh, can I get another dose when it works well for them? And we have a little bit of a limitation in our shop about redosing and nursing, feeling comfortable with that. But continuous infusion is a great uh, way to, to maintain the analgesic efficacy of it. Do you guys have a protocol or do you have to monitor them that they might dissociate at some point or at the dose you give, they never have any complications? Applications with it. The dose we get, we do have protocol because everything in my shop is protocolized. I'm a big proponent of protocolized analgesia when it comes to of FDA approval. It breaks my heart. I still don't understand why FDA has not approved sub dissociative ketamine for pain in variety of settings. But that's besides the point. It's protocolized and uh, starting at 0.15 milligram per kilogram per hour, which is about eight to ten milligrams per hour, and it's a relatively small dose. We do. P- we do place patients on the monitor for, you know, for the nursing comfort and at times for hours. And another thing is if you have the clinical decision unit or observational unit, maybe in the future, you might consider creating protocol that this type of patients with initial intractable pain will get admitted to those units for up to 24 hours with the proper pain control and such instead of going to the hospital. That's fantastic, guys. Obviously, I think we all have a, an affection for ketamine. Obviously, we need to know how to use it correctly. And perhaps in the coming days, we'll have a separate discussion just about ketamine. It sounds like we have a, a lot more to learn about this medicine and how to use it more efficaciously and who will benefit from it and, and also how to find the patients that maybe don't benefit from it. So, I want to just take this opportunity to thank you both for sitting with me and educating me about our current status of pain management in our emergency departments, how we have really to assess our individual patients, discern whether we're dealing with acute pain, whether we're dealing with chronic pain, whether we're dealing, unfortunately, with the patients that have chronic malignant pain, or whether we're having emotional pain, and how maybe those all may cross borders and complicate each other. And then if we can also realize that we are on a pendulum, and as Sergey said, to try not to swing so dramatically to the one side where no one ever gets appropriate pain management because we just put our foot down and said, no one gets opiates from me. I think that will be also a good victory, making sure that we appropriately assess individuals and tailor therapies based on their current pain status and their prior history and the potential predilections that they may have as an individual to go on and have complications of these powerful medicines and also realize that we have other tools. We have other methods that can mitigate someone's pain and in doing so, make them feel better, make us feel like we are doing our job, which is, I think, an important part of our own job satisfaction. I don't like leaving the emergency department shift having been yelled at and chastised because I didn't, you know, treat somebody's pain. I like doing my job and going, driving home and say, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I did a good job today and, and patients were benefited because I was present. So hopefully more conversations like this will help us get there. And I really appreciate your guys' expertise and time. Any last thoughts? No, I think you summarized it well, Sean, and I hope everybody here just really drills down, thinks about the risk of their prescribing in their individual patients and aggressively treats pain with opioid-sparing methodologies and believes when they tell their patients that they can make their pain tolerable using these strategies, that they can really convince their patients to try these strategies and not go to opioids first. Yeah, I agree with Chris, and beautiful summary, Sean. Thank you again for everything, and just one of the latest statement at any point and at any given opportunity try to keep your patients opioid naive patients opioid naive when feasible fantastic 
Well, thank you guys again from uh, Sergey, Chris, and myself here at the J. Lee Garvey Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, at Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Department. This has been EM Guidewire. Thank you. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. CMC out. <laughs> <laughs>